It's like it's my turn. All right, I'd like to ask all of us to find the book of Matthew in the Bible. Would you do that, please? And it's been Tony and I's uh, great pleasure and uh, joy to be with the folks at Trinity Baptist Church all day today. They gave us a bed to lay down on. I like to be horizontal for a little while in the afternoon on Sunday, the older I get, and we were refreshed by the nap in the prophet's chamber and have been refreshed by our fellowship with you and our conversations with you and we're not in a big hurry to leave afterwards if you'd like to talk about anything we would love to talk with you we're not alone there we go is that better Hello, folks. I'm Rick Flanders. I'm glad to uh, have been with you all day long. What I said wasn't really that important anyway. Turn to Matthew 17, please, if you will. Let me take a couple of minutes to say a word about the table, uh, the book table, well, revival book table. Pastor's done a good job talking about it, but I'm going to just say a couple of words about it and also let you know that I noticed something tonight. There are quite a few good seats unoccupied. I mean really good seats, box seats, up front seats, where you can actually see the expression on the preacher's face. I mean, really, it's quite amazing this evening, a good crowd tonight. But I tell you, a lot of room out there. Boy, now let me check with you about something. I'm talking about books for just a couple of minutes. I won't be long. How would you feel if somebody got up from their chair and just stepped out into the aisle and walked up about three rows to get a better seat right in front of us all? Would you think that would destroy the dignity of the service? Would you be offended? Would somebody here be bothered by somebody daring to get up while Brother Flanders is trying to talk and just walk right out there in front of everybody to get a better seat? How many of you folks would be bothered or offended by such a thing? Nobody, absolutely nobody. Now, how many of you folks, especially way back there, sometimes people in the back need to sit back there. I know that. But how many of you anywhere, even if you're up closer, would say, you know what? I see what you see. I see a better seat for me. I see a better seat down there in front. If you do, raise your hand. Let me try this over again. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to tell you, while I'm talking, come on down. You're welcome to come down here. We're talking about something serious, something unusual. Tonight, I'm going to talk about fasting and prayer. Why would a person fast in order to pray? And if I had a chance, I would have us all around a table and a talk across the table. It would be a cozy situation, so make it cozier if you wish. On the table, there are remarkable books that talk about stepping stepping up to the Christian life as Jesus planned it. Did you know he made the Christian life a part of the package? A lot of Baptist people think that Jesus came, died, and rose again to save our soul. And when our sins are taken away, we are left on our own. Now that I'm saved, I've got new duties. (laughs) Yeah, but I've got to kind of work at doing my duty. Kind of like what I was saying this morning. The rules. (laughs) That the whole Christian life, 
The whole deal is Jesus saved me, gave me a heart that wanted to serve him, but left it up to me to find a way to serve him. Well, did you know that's not true? Did you know that part of the package inside the box that's called the gift of eternal life is another gift? It's called the gift of the Holy Ghost. For a hundred years now, Baptists have been a little reluctant to talk about that gift. That's why we're so dead. The Holy Spirit was given to us to help us put it all together and make it happen. And serious, by faith in the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live the Christian life, which is what that old song was about. Our brother knew I love that song. Oh, everyone that's thirsty in spirit. And it says, Tis the endowment for life and for service. The Holy Spirit's there to help me live a holy life. He is holy. I've got problems. He has no problems. If I reckon myself to be dead to sin and alive to God, if I put off my old man and put on the new man, I can live a holy life. No kidding. He's the endowment for life and for service. A lot of Christian people who come to church all the time and live a pretty decent life, a respectable life, are scared to death about witnessing and stepping out to say something for Jesus. Did you know that the Holy Spirit was given to give you boldness and power and faith and wisdom? If you ever want to find out whether or not God's inside you, a good thing to do is step out of the box. Get out of your comfort zone, especially on witnessing. I'm not kidding you. Get out there. Many people have done this. Go up to a door and ring the doorbell. That way you can't back out. Ring the doorbell. Somebody comes to the door. Trust the Holy Spirit for, for the, what you need. And you might be amazed how soon you would be talking to a perfect stranger about eternity. And walk away and say, I can't believe that happened. That's the miracle Christian life. Great books out there like Andrew Murray. Do you know Andrew Murray? A uh, pastor in South Africa 100 years ago wrote some phenomenal books. The two we have is Abide in Christ. The other one is called Absolute Surrender. And Absolute Surrender isn't even about Absolute Surrender. It's not. That's the sixth chapter. The first chapter is Be Filled with the Spirit. The book is about the Spirit-filled Christian life. You won't be able to put it down. You really won't. An amazing book that has helped so many folks. An old book, tried and proven. Then I want to mention the books by my friend John Van Gelderen. He's an evangelist and revivalist that lives in our state. Two books out there. One is called The Revival Journey, which is the journey that many of us are on. The Revival Journey. The other one is called Friendship with the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of folks are a little uncomfortable with the idea that I partner every day with the Holy Spirit. But I tell you, it's biblical and it's doable. And that book is so practical and will help you. So take a look at all the books, books by evangelists, books written in revivals. Yeah, those are great books. And they will be worth stopping by the table to look at. That's for sure. Now, Matthew chapter 17. As you know, Matthew is one of the books in the Bible that talks about or records for us the words and works of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
So we're entering into an account, a story, a narrative. Now let's pick it up with verse 14. Matthew 17, 14. And when they were come down, come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind, cometh not, goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now today, we're talking about praying, specifically praying for revival. So let me kind of go over a couple of things with you about this important duty that we have today to pray for revival and perhaps to fast and pray for revival in our life and in our church. Now, in Sunday school, we read about effective praying. And the example and illustration given by James is Elijah in the Old Testament. A man who knew how to pray. Matter of fact, I call him the prayer prophet. We is called a prophet, but we don't have a record of any sermons by Elijah. I don't know if he ever preached any. What he did to affect the people of God was he prayed. And his prayers had that effect. Now, Revival, if you understand what it is, comes always in answer to prayer because of the metaphor. Revival itself, the word revive, is a metaphor, a word picture. Down at Hurley, Genesee, Genesis, they do reviving in the ER. See the metaphor? You don't go to the emergency room because you're feeling good and you want to feel better. It's not a place to go get a a few vitamins. No, it's a place, by definition, for an emergency. You're in bad shape. You're not hardly breathing. You can't walk around. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you're in bad shape. Their job is to take a look at you and revive you, resuscitate you, (laughs) see, bring you back. That's what that is. Now, there's nothing wrong with Christianity. The salvation Jesus gave us is full and complete. It is religion that works. But you know what's wrong is? It's What's wrong is with the Christians. <laughs> nothing wrong with Christianity. And we need reviving. See, and don't you see, the metaphor implies the fact 
that we're in a shape where we can't get ourselves better. You don't go to the ER if you can sit down for a few minutes or eat some uh, chicken soup or take an aspirin and you'll be okay. Now, reviving means I need help. That's the whole picture. Throughout the Bible, one of God's children or all of God's people have sunk down so low that they're just crying out for help. Kind of like that commercial. I've fallen and I can't get up. I need help. That's what it means. Now, I can get away from God. I can be a Christian. I can feel low. I can be low. I can realize I've been living according to my flesh and not by the Holy Spirit. And I love the world. And I really don't love the Lord very much. But I can get into that situation so badly that I'm so low, I can't get myself out of the hole. I want to get out of the hole. I've heard preaching on my sin. But I don't know how to get myself out of the hole. So I cry, help! Help! And you know what? His hand comes down and lifts me up. Matter of fact, that's another metaphor for revival. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Or to give the whole quote, James chapter 4. God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. See? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Lift you up from where you are to where you want to be. And you know what? I quoted to you from James 4, verses 6 through 10. I've actually seen where a group of Christian people got together and say, we need revival, and we know the only place we can get it is him. And humble themselves and deliberately sought the Lord, and God came. I've been at a number of those prayer meetings And I'm going to tell you, God wants to revive his people. And you know, his people in general around the world have sunk very low, but God can lift us up. And you know how that happens? When we cry out, when we pray, when we say, Lord, me, my family, our church, our world hardly knows of the truth because of the low condition And sinful condition of your people. O God, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Now, pastor knows that I spent part of my afternoon reading term papers. They weren't really term papers. They were papers from graduate school. I don't know, what do you call those? Research papers. And I did, I read three of them this afternoon out of, I think, uh, 15. So I barely got started on this. I teach a class called History of Revival. And I've got the papers by email, and I'm studying them and grading them. One thing they certainly reminded me of is how often great revivals have come in answer to prayer. After the Great Awakening, which came in answer to prayer in the colonial days, after the Great Awakening was over, we had had our Revolutionary War, and we were independent. Our country was morally ruined. Now, I'm a patriotic American. 
And I'm for independence and the Constitution and everything, but I'll tell you something, it is a fact that after our country was established, there are a number of reasons that if I was going to tell you we'd have a class hour from my class, why our country was sunk really low and headed the wrong direction. So you know what happened? 1794, some Christian leaders said, we need to start praying for a revival, for another awakening. And it got to be in 1795 that all around our new country, in nearly every community, on the first Tuesday of the month, they met at the church house to pray for another awakening. That happened. If you came to the town, you would see wagons and horses and people down at the church. And they were praying. Some of them were fasting and praying for another awakening. And you know what? It came. It's called by history the Second Great Awakening. Began a couple years later, lasted for 50 years, the longest lasting national revival in modern times. When the Second Great Awakening fizzled in the 1850s, there was a movement in the United States and Canada that we should have another revival. So there were people traveling the country here and up there suggesting that people have prayer meetings to ask God to revive his people again. And you know what happened? 1857, 1858, it's called the Prayer Revival. Historians call it, listen to this, the event of the century. The 1800s in the United States after the Civil War cannot be explained except for the spiritual miracle that happened all over the country in 1858. No kidding. Right now, if our town, I don't know about Flushing, was settled in 1858, you can go to the old churches, and if they still have records back that far, you will find records of revival right in your town. 1858, it so permeated the country. And people we know, very famous people now, were recruited to Christian work during that revival. D.L. Moody, Fanny Crosby, numbers of other people. And after the Civil War, our whole country was characterized by area-wide evangelistic meetings with great preaching and hundreds of thousands of people saved. And it came out of the prayer revival. Then, did you know this? In the 1890s, people in the United States and England came to the place where they realized that the world needed us to be something we are no more. We once were, but we're not anymore. And we have records of gatherings of people in the 1890s to pray for a worldwide revival when the 1900s would come on. A worldwide revival, that doesn't mean everybody gets saved. That doesn't mean that the kingdom has come. A worldwide revival, and to some degree, when the new century comes on. And you know what? When things started happening about 1901, Christians everywhere were saying, in print, we can read it. This is what we prayed for. Today, in one of the papers I read, didn't know this, that the prayer meetings continued into the early 1900s. In Australia, like a gathering of, this is hard to believe, gathering of people all over Australia totaling 40,000 people meeting to cry out to God for a revival. Revival, prayer meetings all over Wales as the Welsh revival got started. And from 1901 to about 1912, it was one of the most amazing periods of progress of the gospel since Jesus went back to heaven. You know what happened? 
His people asked him to do it. And friends, I'm going to tell you, to pray for revival can be one of the most important things I could accomplish in my lifetime would be to ask God to do what the Bible says he wants to do. And oftentimes, folks, real praying, fervent praying, is accompanied by fasting. This kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. Why? Lord, we just ask you tonight to teach us and open our eyes. Show us maybe something new. May we pray effectively like we learned about this morning from Elijah. And may we pray more effectively through the use of fasting or whatever means you would have us to use in order to have the faith we need to have you respond to our prayers. Hear our prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The 17th chapter of Matthew begins with the account of the transfiguration. Now, really be honest with me about this. How many of you folks are basically familiar with the story of the transfiguration? Raise your hand. Good. Okay, that's a good number, but about half. Now, transfiguration is not a word that I use every day. And what does it mean? Well, what happened was Jesus took a few of the apostles, not all of them, up into a high mountain. Book of Luke says they went up there to pray. And while they were there, he was transfigured before them. All of a sudden, he began to glow. The Bible says his clothing was so white that you have never seen clothing that white. And his face glowed. What was happening was his deity, the fact that he is God, was shining out through his humanity, through his human flesh. An unforgettable experience that the Apostle Peter spoke of not long before he died in the book of Second Peter. It was an amazing thing. Remember, two others appeared with him. And that is Moses and Elijah, Old Testament saints that, of course, were in heaven, came back from heaven for a meeting with Jesus Christ to talk to him about his coming crucifixion. That's what we're told they were talking about. And the apostles were astonished. And one of them said, let's put up tabernacles, three of them. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then a voice came from heaven where the father said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. He's not to be compared with Moses and Elijah. He is unique. He is my son. Wide an experience affected them all of their lives. Now it's over. And it's time to go down off the mountain. When they come down off the mountain, they run into a pretty sad situation. And they are faced with failure. And they are told that the problem was their unbelief, their lack of faith. And then they are told, this kind of devil is not cast out except by prayer and fasting. Did you know fasting, going without food in order to pray, is a part of the Christian life? Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ said, when you fast, when you fast, don't appear to men to fast. Don't go around saying, well, I'm kind of peaking because I've been fasting for a couple of days. 
But he didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. A couple of chapters later in the book of Matthew, some come to him and say, why don't your disciples fast? He said, because I'm with them. But he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. Who is they? Us. When we fast, then they will fast. My followers will fast. Did you know that? And throughout the Bible, it's a very, very important tool that is used by Christians to make their prayers more effective. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, we read about a local church sending out the first missionaries. And they prayed for them before they left and fasted as they prayed. After they won souls, preached the gospel, started new churches, they left their new churches behind to come back and make a report at the church at Antioch. When they did, they gathered them for a prayer meeting. When they prayed, they fasted. Now, we can't ignore that. And there is a reason for it, not hard to understand. But let me explain it this way. First of all, there was an embarrassing situation. What was that situation? There was a family that had a need. My son. The son had major problems. They were physical problems. He fell into a fire. He fell into a water. He had nearly killed himself. He had mental problems. It is said that he was lunatic. But behind his physical and mental problems was a spiritual problem. He was possessed of a devil. Now, Americans don't know enough, don't know very much about demon possession. But it's a reality all around the world. And fallen angels sometimes take possession of the bodies of human beings. They apparently want to, from what we understand in the Bible. Now, you open yourself up to devils by a number of different ways. In other words, you're not just walking down the street and one day a devil possesses you. No, you open yourself up to devils. That's what a lot of the occult is about. Witchcraft, and can I tell you, some of the religions of the world are basically witchcraft. Hinduism, Buddhism. Where people open themselves up to entities and intelligences that are not theirs. And are sometimes possessed of devils. In parts of the world where devil possession is common, uh, another thing associated with it is a certain kind of music, beat-oriented music, as has flooded this country since the 1950s. As a matter of fact, sometimes from some of these so-called primitive countries, if someone came over and listened to the music and saw what was going on with the drugs, they would say, you know what's happened? The devil has invaded your country. Now the young man had this major problem. And so his father brought him to the disciples of Jesus. And he said, could you help us out? Matter of fact, in Mark 9 and Luke 9 are other accounts of the same event. And they're quite compelling. Could you help us out? And they thought they could, but they couldn't. They failed. What I'm saying is, that's embarrassing. For us. For him. Now you remember the Lord Jesus had the problem of a great crowd that came to hear him preach. 
And they were there so long and they were hungry and there was no way for them to go get food. His disciples wanted to wash them their hands of responsibility for all these hungry people. And they said to Jesus, we must send them away. Now, I don't think there was time for them to get to any kind of food anyway. But if they passed out along the way, at least it wouldn't be the disciples' fault. We've been here a long time, Lord. Let's send them away. He said, they they need not go away. Then he says to the disciples, you feed them. You know what he was saying? The people of God never need to turn people away to the world. People come with great needs. And you know what? We should be able to meet the needs. Here was an embarrassing situation. They could not, quote, cure him. And yet, they could. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus had given the disciples, the apostles in particular, power over devils to cast them out. We read in another place that they cast out many devils. Ever since Jesus gave them that power and authority, they had cast devils out in his name. They had done it before. But now when he was absent up on the mountain with those three that were chosen to experience the transfiguration, when they were faced with this fellow, with this major problem, there was something about it that made their hearts wither and drained them of faith. This looked too hard. One of the other accounts says it was a dumb devil, D-U-M-B. He did not speak. I don't know if that's especially difficult, but this was an especially difficult case. And they who had faith before now didn't have the faith. And you know what? The family was left disappointed in Christ and Christianity. And their son was still racked with this horrible problem. And then Jesus appeared. Now, it was a shameful situation. But number two, we learned the real problem. Look at verse 19. No, look at, uh, excuse me, chapter 17. Yes, verse 19. Why could not we cast him out? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. In verse 17, he had said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? The problem was their lack of faith. When he spoke of unbelief, he said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, that's not very much. You can move a mountain. Now, to understand faith, you have to understand that faith is based on some information. If I uh, told you I was very disappointed in your pastor this afternoon because we had an appointment at McDonald's and he never, never showed up, you'd be shocked. You'd probably think I was lying to you because he's not that kind of a guy. But what if I said, you know what, I went to McDonald's fully expecting Pastor Ferguson to meet me there, and he never showed up. And uh, what if after I said that, uh, Pastor Ferguson caught me after church and said, was I supposed to meet you this afternoon at McDonald? Did I promise you I would be there? What if I said, well, no, you never told me you were going to be there. Well, let me get this right, Brother Flanders. You went down to McDonald's and waited around for me, and I never told you I was going to be there. And now you publicly shamed me. 
by saying that you're disappointed in my not showing up when I never said that I would? What's going on here? What if I said, well, you know what? I was thinking I need to talk to Pastor Ferguson before tonight. I really need to. So I went down to McDonald's and I said, I just know he's coming through that door. Oh, yeah, here's this man and wife with their kids. That's fine. In a few minutes, it's going to be Seth Ferguson coming in. I just know it. I just know it. Oh, I just know it. I, I believe. I believe. Here he comes to McDonald's for a meeting with me. But he never showed up. Now, that's ridiculous. But that's what some people on the radio and TV preach is faith. That if I can conjure up in my mind that something's going to happen, that it'll happen. That's not faith. Faith in God is when God indicates he's going to do something, I can bank on the fact that he will do it. Even if it's huge, like moving a mountain. He wasn't telling them, if you want to move a mountain, just make yourself think that the mountain's going to move and it will. Because if that was what he was teaching them, you would think they would have tried that out. We have no record in history or the Bible that any of the apostles ever moved a mountain. You know why? God never told them he would move the mountain. But he was saying this. If God indicates to you, I'm going to do this, you can bank on it. You believe. And it's going to come to pass. So here they were. They had the authority and power to cast out devils. But they couldn't. And it was an embarrassment to themselves and to the cause. It was because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. They had the authority of Jesus Christ to say that they could cast out the devil. But now they doubted that. Maybe not this case. Tell you what, I have a habit of looking down my nose at people in the Bible. I've had that habit ever since I got saved. After I received Christ, I started reading my Bible. I read these stories about the Israelites. They were slaves in Egypt. And God did some remarkable things to get the king's attention. Remember? You know about the frogs and about the blood. All those amazing things. And finally, the Red Sea opened up. Here they are out in the desert after seeing all those miracles and they start doubting God. I remember reading going, what? Where are we going to get food? How are we going to be able to drink water in the desert? What is God doing? I read that. I said, come on. You know Jehovah God, the God who opened up the Red Sea, and you're doubting him? What's the matter with you? Well, I got less critical of them as my Christian life went on, and I found out that I'm just like them. Here are the apostles who saw miracles and saw devils cast out, but this time it just looked like too tough a case for God. I'd be critical of them, except that's a whole lot like me where I'll go forward and I'll see God work. And then when another situation comes up like that, but looks a little harder, somehow I feel like God's not up to it. How foolish. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't say it was just foolish. It was perverse. Oh, perverse and faithless generation. Did you know it's perverted to doubt God? God can be counted on. God is a God of truth and integrity. God cannot lie. And to doubt God is perverted. So it was wrong 
It was the reason that they failed. It was their unbelief. That's what the Lord Jesus said. And then he told them, we can fix that. The next time you face a very, very difficult challenge, you know what you need to do? You need to try something, fellas. Prayer and fasting. This kind cometh not out, but by prayer and fasting. Fasting, of course, is doing without food. Doing without food in order to prayer, in order to pray. And it was the cure to their unbelief. And ours, too. And our failure before the world often comes because of unbelief. Now, why would it be, if I went without food for a while and prayed, why would that make it so that I would have more faith and get my prayers answered? All right? I want to tell you, it's not about a hunger strike. It's pretty interesting how Christian people talk. If you decide to fast and pray a day or two for revival or for some other serious situation, don't think that you're doing that to make God sorry for you. Oh, am I hungry? Oh, man, am I hungry? I ache. My stomach is turning upside down. Oh, God, you've got to come through for me. No, it's not about gaining sympathy from God by going on a hunger strike any more than it is. Have you ever heard people, and there's nothing really wrong with this, saying, I have a lot of people praying for me. I'm going in for surgery tomorrow. I got people everywhere praying for me. Sometimes they'll say, I've got missionaries praying for me across the ocean. Got a lot of people praying for me. Do you think a lot of people praying for us means that God's going to come through because we're ganging up on him? Does God have an angel saying, how many people are praying for him? Let's see, how many do you have there? 145. Well, that's not quite up to the standard. Yeah, I won't come through. Now, there is a reason for us to pray together, according to Matthew 18. But, all right, what is fasting and prayer actually about? It's about the transfiguration. He took them up to a high mountain, and they went there to pray. While they were there, suddenly he was transfigured before them. And they got to see Jesus who he re- for who he really was. His godness shined out through his manness. His deity. He's the son of the living God. Look at him. They never forgot it as long as they lived. They had a literal mountaintop experience where they saw Jesus Christ for who he really was. But you know what? It was time to come down from the mountain. When they got down at the bottom of the mountain in the valley, you know what they ran into? A problem. More than a problem, a need. They ran into a family that really had a need. The others who had not been on the mountain with them were not able to meet that need. They went up to the mountain and had an experience with God, unforgettable experience, in order to make them ready to come down to the valley and meet the need that's there. Now, let me tell you something. Fasting is about this. Neglecting the physical to attend to the spiritual. Okay, it's about stepping away from the visible to focus on the invisible. Second Corinthians says that the things that are visible are temporal or temporary 
and the things that are invisible are eternal. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now listen carefully about this. If I will neglect the physical to attend to the spiritual, I'm not going to eat. Eating is something very basic. But tomorrow I'm not going to eat because there's something spiritual that demands my attention. And I'm going to just forget eating and I'm going to deal with that thing that, it, that calls for my attention. You know what happens? What happens is that faith is generated. Faith is generated. When I... Um, Turn away from the visible to focus on the invisible. The invisible becomes visible. And I have faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How many of you folks that come to Trinity Baptist believe the Bible? Yeah, I'm a Bible believer too. But I want to tell you something. A lot of the time I live in a fog about those things. Do you believe God could do this? Yes, I believe God could. Do you believe God would do this? Well, it seems to say that he would. Do you think he will? Fog. You know why? I'm distracted most of the time. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking in a very practical way, we call it where visible things become the real things and invisible things somehow become unreal, although I believe in them. You know, if you pin me down and said, are you a liberal or a modernist or are you an agnostic or something? No, I believe they're real, but I don't really live like they're real. And visible, physical things, things I can touch, that's reality. You know what I'm doing? I'm living in a fog living in a fog, and I'm going to tell you. The Bible says that if you just neglect the physical for a while and say nothing's more important than my having this prayer answered, nothing's more important. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give up meals. I'm not going to starve myself to death. I'm going to be sensible about this. Sometimes you'll know a Christian doctor that understands fasting might give you guidance about your particular medical condition. I'm diabetic. I had a guy talk to me about fasting last week who said actually fasting is good for a diabetic. Sugar goes down. But there are some special things you've got to kind of deal with if you're diabetic. And this is not legalism. It's not, here are the rules. Can't have a little cracker all day long. No, that's not it. It's the basic deal. There's something a whole lot more important right now than breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I'm going to give that up in order to pray. You know what will happen to you? The invisible things become real. And the fog dissipates. You almost pretty well will have to do it to find out that that's true. It's an utterly amazing thing how faith is generated by doing that. There's another kind of activity connected with prayer that, uh, that is a matter of neglecting the physical to attend to the spiritual or putting away the visible to focus on the invisible. And that's called watch and pray. 
To watch and pray would not be to do without food, but to do without think. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember that. To watch and pray is to do without what? Do without sleep. Honey, I'm not coming to bed right now. I don't know when I'll come to bed. But you know our burden. You know our situation. I think I need to get a hold of God tonight. Because you know what? I'm in a fog. Haven't you been praying about that problem? Sure, I've been praying about it. My usual devotions, maybe they're long devotions. A lot of Bible reading, a lot of praying. But I tell you what, it isn't happening for me. You know, the reality that God is there listening to my prayers hasn't really hit me. See what I need to do? I'm not coming to bed. I'm not sure when I'm coming to bed. I'm going to go in the living room or I'm going to go in the basement or maybe I'll go back out in the woods. And I'll do like saints of old have done and cry out to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, you neglect the physical to attend to the spiritual. The spiritual becomes real. And I know you're in church today, but I'm going to tell you, for a lot of Christian people, spiritual things aren't really real. When they become real, that's called faith. And you know what faith does? It brings remarkable answers to prayer. In our country church, one year we had a group of kids graduate from our Christian school, which, of course, happened every year. There was young man, one young man graduating that year who had been rebellious for from about the seventh grade on. It was all over his face, but he didn't break rules. Have you ever had anybody at a Christian school that you knew of who was smart enough not to break the rules? Didn't get to marriage, didn't get himself kicked out, but he also was about a million miles away from God. This was obvious about this young man. Nobody had been able to get through to him. He graduates from high school. He's going to go to Kettering over here that fall. He's a genius. Going to go to Kettering and uh, become a more informed genius. Make a lot of money walking away from God. What we didn't know was this. The night of his graduation, he came home, diploma from Juniata Christian School, threw his Bible down, told his mom and dad, I'm never picking up that book again. I'm never going back to church. I'm finished with the whole thing. Now that I'm out of school, I'm done. Now, of course, that broke their hearts, started a conversation. Finally, his dad said to him, now, as long as you live in my house, you're going to go to church. All right, I'll go this summer then. Now, we knew nothing about this, but it was a terrible situation. Then that September, I was sitting up on the platform with Mr. Needler. Some of you know Brother Needler. He was our youth director. And I was sitting up there, and I looked down there, and guess what? This guy who always sat in the back row and never sang, in church was in about the third row singing like a bird he had a glow on his face he was smiling opening his mouth and singing I turned to brother Needler I said look at that we could see something happen we found out what happened that day pastor Brian the principal of the Christian school the coach said that the day before on Saturday the young man showed up at his house he said, well, hi, how are you? Well, I got to talk to you, Brother Brian. 
He said, I went down to the college where I had selected for my training, and I lived there for one week. And at the end of that week, I said, I can't live that way. As much as I've been critical of Christianity and church and the Bible, the fact is, I can't live that way. I can't live that way. And Brother Brian, Brian, I have come to the end of myself. He said, do you think they'd let me into Maranatha? And you know what? That young man was already broken, and he got right with God that night. He did go to Maranatha, married a sweet girl, and they're serving the Lord today. Wonderful story. But here's the part of the story nobody knew. After that announcement, graduation night, his mother gave herself to fasting and prayer for her son every Tuesday. All day Tuesday, no food. All day, the whole day was about her son. She told God, she told us, it's our fault. It's our fault. We indulged him. We let him get away with so many things. He was rebelling, turning the wrong way, and we didn't do anything about it. It's our fault. She got down on her knees, and she said, God, it's my fault, but he's my son. Oh, God, would you speak to his heart? Fasting and prayer every Tuesday all summer long, and then all of a sudden, a miracle that first week of September. You know what happened? It came in response to fasting and prayer. That's why so many times in the Bible and also in history, revivals have come in response to fasting and prayer. Where someone says, you know what? I want to pray for revival, but I'm in a fog. Even to grasp onto what revival is. Or what revival would look like at Trinity. I'm in a fog. I need to come right into the throne room. You know what I'm going to do, honey? Now, just between you and me, because Jesus said, don't tell people when you fast. (laughs) Don't brag about it. Honey, I don't want to eat tomorrow. You know what the burden is. You know what the problem is. During my meal times, I'm going to get alone with God and pray. Or a man might even say, you know what, I'm calling in and I'm not going to work tomorrow. Because you know what, this is such a big issue, such a big problem, such a major thing that it calls for my full attention. And I'm not going to eat tomorrow. Or some people I know, two days, three days. And I want to tell you from personal testimony that what happens is when you fast and pray or watch and pray is that the invisible becomes visible. It's like you walk into the throne room of God. It may take a while. It may not happen the first meal you skip. But I'm going to tell you something. When God sees a man or a woman who means business and will put away food to seek his face, God will also respond to that person first by making himself known to them. And so that's why we have people all over the state of Michigan giving one day a month to fasting and prayer for revival in their life, in their family, in their church, in all the churches of Michigan. And you know, the longer you talk to God, he'll expand your prayers to pray for his family around the world. Quality time with God. Let's just bow our heads. Can we do that right now? I'd like to ask, 